You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. This morning, we are going to read from Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have one, but you would like to be in a hard copy of the text, you can find one under a seat somewhere around you. And if you don't own a Bible at home, we just want to offer that you take that copy home with you as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have access to the scriptures at your own house. So if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that one with you. Um, Again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12. So when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's a great day uh, to be gathered together to worship the Lord. Glad that you joined us. So this text, Exodus 33, I technically have the whole chapter, um, which never goes well. But I did pretty good time-wise in the last gathering. I did have some caffeine in between, so we'll see what happens. But I think we'll be good. Uh, but there's really a lot, of, a lot of things we could say about Exodus 33. There's so much in here, kind of on the tail end of Exodus 32. Last week, Ty preached about the golden calf incident, is what we'll call it, golden calf gate. And what happened was God had basically given them, you shall have no other gods before me, right? There's no other God above me. You shall worship me and me alone. Don't make a graven image. You know, they get all these these commands, right? And then what happens is Moses got up on the mountain, he's taken too long, and the people immediately, they take the gold which they had plundered from the Egyptians through God's hand that were going to be used to bless them, and they melted that down to build this golden calf that they were going to worship. And they danced around, did all these things, and they worshiped this golden calf instead. Uh, and so obviously God is very angry. Right? These people have breached, if you will, the covenant that they had made with their God. And so Exodus 33 is a picture of God's response, the beginning of God's response. We see God respond, we see Moses respond, we see the people of God respond, um, but we're going to really focus kind of on God's response and what we see about God's character here. Uh, there, there's really, there's some helpful questions to think about every time you read the Bible, whether that's you're kind of looking at 
you know, in a context like this, you're reading personally. Uh, and, and I've tried to implement this with kind of our, our home group. But th- these are three, three things to consider about the word as we approach it, which is what does this passage teach me about God? Okay, that's number one. What do I see about God's character, about God's nature? How does God act? What does he feel? What does he do? And we're kind of looking through that lens. The, the next thing is um, basically where is this passage teaching me to repent and act, right? So you learn not only things about God in the Bible, but about yourself. And so you say, okay, uh, clearly I messed up here somewhere. You should know that every time you get into the Bible, you messed up somewhere, right? So where can I repent? How can I act faithfully with the knowledge I have about the Lord? And then thirdly is how is God teaching me to believe, right? So in this passage, what, I'm, what, what kind of truth should I be holding on to? We're gonna try to cover some of that. I mainly wanna focus on that first question is what does this passage teach us about God? Uh, and so in light of that, I wanna just pray. I wanna pray that God would help us as we go through the word, that his words would be known and applied in our lives. So if you would join me together, let's pray and then we'll hop into it. Father, we thank you that you love us. You are a faithful God. You are an amazing God. And we humbly and truthfully acknowledge that right now, if we don't have your Holy Spirit helping us to see as we ought to see, we have no vision to see your word, no ears to hear, no ability to both comprehend rightly and to live it out. And so God, we just ask right now, would you help us? Would you help us as we get into your word Let no distraction, let not the enemy, let not anything, God, befall us right now that would cause us not to hear from you. God, I pray you'd reveal yourself to us in glorious ways and that we would leave this gathering rejoicing to be named among the children of God. Would you help us? And we ask this in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's really three kind of flyover things I want to mention, and that's three characteristics of God that are revealed in this text. Like I said, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of sermons that can be preached by it, but I want to just focus high level. What is God showing us about himself? How do we apply it to us? And then if Lord willing, we have a little bit of time, we'll talk about some application from the text. So let's hop into it. I had Lauren just read that back end because that's kind of where we're going to going to land the plane, if you will, but I want to start in verse one. And the first thing I want to mention is that God shows us that he is a covenant keeping God. Let's look at verse one together. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Stop right there. So this is just kind of true about the Bible. God, God works with his people in the form of covenants. Okay, God makes covenants. A, a covenant Uh, simply put, and maybe not a great definition, but it's uh, not quite a contract. You've probably heard that distinction. A covenant is a commitment that says, I commit to doing this at all costs. Now, there could be conditions, but uh, one example, this is marriage, right? I'm going to be with you, sickness, health, rich or poor, whatever it may be. We're going to be with each other until one of us dies, and then we'll no longer be with each other, right? That's marriage. It's a covenant with someone. God does this. He makes covenant with his people. And so God has made a covenant. He mentions there, that I'm going to give you the land that I promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of 
the faith, right? And really this goes back even further because in Genesis 3.15, when God, when, when Adam and Eve first sin and sin enters the hearts of man, God says, look, I'm going to send from the seed of a woman one who will crush the head of the serpent, right? And so God has made a covenant. He made a covenant with Adam, which was broken and sin enters the world. And now God has made a covenant to send the redeemer, which we know has happened. We kind of know the storyline of the Bible, but God has made a covenant with his people. And what we see here is that in Exodus 32, the people breached that covenant, right? The covenant was, I will go with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will drive out all the inhabitants of the land. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I will be your God. I will fix what has gone wrong, right? I will crush the head of the servant. This is the covenant I make with you. You will be my people. And through you, this will happen. All the nations of the world will be blessed. And the people of God, as part of their covenant with the God of the universe was to obey him, to walk in his ways, to be faithful unto him, to have no other gods before them, to love one another as the people of God. And we see this breached, right, in Exodus 32. And so uh, you could say the correct response would be to obliterate the people, right, to utterly destroy them because they broke the covenant. But God, in his mercy, in verses one through three, establishes what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep my covenant. You guys go up from amongst this place. I am going to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. I am going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Now there was a distinction, right? Because initially God was supposed to be in their midst. This was the big promise of the tabernacle, right? God was going to dwell with his people, but God says, but I am not going to go up before you. I will send an angel before you, but if I were to come up with you, I would consume you because you are a stiff-necked people. God says, if I come with you, justice will be served and you will be destroyed. Now, we're going to get later what comes with that. But I want to point out that God, nonetheless, is keeping the promises he made with his people, right? Now, the promise wasn't just merely, like we said, a promise of land, a promise of a land flow and milk and honey that they would get. The promise was much deeper than that, right? It was the redemption of his people and all of that that kind of flows in the gospel. But nonetheless, he does this. And not only does he maintain his promise of the land of the Canaanites that they were going to take, but he's also... And we're going to see this in verses 12 and on that we just read. He is going to listen to the prayers of Moses. Moses is going to intercede for the people of God at the tent of meeting. He is going to plead that God would relent from not going with them and that God would go with them. And so what we're going to see is God is actually going to continue that covenant as well. He is going to go with his people and his presence will be with them. So God, in his grace, as a covenant-keeping God, one who, uh, as we sing that song back in the children's ministry, is one who always keeps his promises, God is going to do what he said he would do. He is going to fulfill the covenant with his people. He's going to listen to the prayers of Moses, and God is going to uh, rest assured. He is going to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham as he promised he would do. Now, Most of the people don't uh, obtain the promise. They die in the wilderness. Hebrews 3 talks about this. Really all of Hebrews talks about how they did not believe in God. But nonetheless, God is going to be faithful to his word and his people. Uh, An application for us here is that God does not go back on his word. If God says it, it is true. If God says it, it will happen. Despite what man may do, God will keep his promises. So when God says things like, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail There's no way he's going to fail, right? God is going to do what he said he would do. If he promises you in his word that I will complete the good work which I have started in you, God will do it, right? He is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so 
God keeps his promises. This is so important, okay? He is unlike all the other lowercase g gods in the world for this very reason and many other reasons. But if you ever notice, all the pantheon of other gods that people worship, they're basically humans, but with a lot more power, okay? They're kind of like superheroes, but they have the same anger, the same temperament, the same kind of swindling. Our God is not that way. He is altogether different. He keeps his promise. He keeps his covenant. This is good news for us as members of the new covenant that God is going to keep his word. He never fails. And we see this with God. Despite the people, though they should have been destroyed, he's very gracious to them, which brings me to point number two, which is that God also shows us that he is a gracious God in this text. Um, There's many reasons. I'm going to name a few and read a few verses. But uh, first and foremost, like we mentioned, God does not utterly destroy his people like they deserve, right? They breach the covenant. They deserve destruction, yet God in his grace and mercy does not respond in that way, okay? They breach the command, but God is going to redeem them. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. It says this, when the people heard this disastrous word, which was that God was not going to go in their midst, this was a disaster, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments at Mount Horeb onward. What we see here is an act of grace. God is giving them a blueprint for repentance. This is important, right? They had messed up, right? They had sinned greatly and grievously. And at this point, they're probably not even mourning because... That, that God wasn't going to be with them, but more so that if God wasn't with them, they were going to potentially be destroyed by other nations. Okay? And so we don't really have much evidence that there was a big change of heart in the people, but nonetheless, God is gracious to them by showing them what it means to repent. They were to strip all of their ornaments, which would have been signs of God's blessing, God blessing his people, right? And they used a lot of those ornaments to uh, basically make the golden calf. And so God says, you should take all of it off. This is going to be a sign of mourning of the disaster that's come upon you because of your sin. And this is going to lead them to reflection on their sin and to repent before their God. Make no mistake, despite the culture that we live in, it is a good thing when God does this. You know, we kind of, uh, not really us necessarily, but a lot of the world is like, no, you shouldn't tell people they're all bad. You know, like everyone's good. You should focus on the good things. You shouldn't be, you know, telling anyone that what they're doing is wrong, right? Uh, but that's not loving, is it? No, it's God's loving when he calls them out. He's loving when he makes them mourn. He's loving when he strips their ornaments off. It's a very merciful and gracious thing he's doing to his people. He's saying, you will be reminded of what you have done so that you might repent and come to me rather than to forsake me. That's a way he shows his mercy. Continuing in verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he, he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. We'll stop right there. So, Another way God is very gracious in showing his mercy in this moment is that God's presence is still among the people, right? Now, now remember, the promise was that God was going to be in their midst. The tabernacle has not been built yet. The tabernacle we've been talking about for several weeks, that was supposed to be right in the center of the camp and they were all to encamp around the tabernacle so that God's presence would be right in the midst of his people as he came down to the Holy of Holies. But what happens now is instead of him dwelling amongst them, lest he consume them, 
Moses takes the tent of meeting really far outside of the camp so that God would not consume his people. But there was the caveat that anyone who sought the Lord could come outside of the camp to that tent of meeting, right? God is very, being very gracious to his people. He's still dwelling amongst them and still calls all of those who might want to seek to come and to find him and to commune with him. This is a glorious thing that God does for his people. He keeps his presence among them outside the camp. And then uh, continuing on down through 10, uh, sorry, 9, 10, 11, it says, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, uh, the pillar, sorry, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so uh, another uh, gracious thing we see is that God allows Moses to continue to be the face-to-face basically mediator between the people and God. And we're going to see kind of how he mediates here starting in verse 12. But God allows this to happen. This is a gracious thing, right? Now, obviously, Moses didn't really take part in the golden calf incident. He's got his own sins to worry about. And we're going to cover those as we continue through Exodus. But nonetheless, God allows Moses to still come to him face to face as one talks with a friend and to plead with him for the people of God, the undeserving, vile people of God that have uh, breached the covenant. God allows him to intercede. This should remind you of someone, right? Jesus Christ, the better Moses, our mediator. So this glimpse of grace of Moses interceding for his people should be a huge picture for us of the grace of God and Jesus mediating for us. As Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is Jesus right now in heaven at the throne on our behalf being the better Moses for us right now, interceding for the people of God. Every sin you commit, every time your heart wanders away from the glory and grace and mercy of God, Jesus therefore intercedes for us. What a glorious truth. What a gracious truth for us. It's a gracious thing that the God who answers prayer allowed Moses to intercede for his people. God was not surprised by this. It wasn't that God all of a sudden saw Moses crying and changed his mind like we would if we saw an abandoned puppy. It's not what happened. He knew what he was to do and graciously allowed Moses to take part in the redemption of his people. It's an amazing thing that God does. He's very, very good to us. And there's one more thing I want to read. Uh, I'll start in verse 19. So Moses basically asked God, show me your glory. Probably not really understanding exactly what he was saying and this is what happens. And he said, this is God saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and I and, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's a crazy moment. I don't even want to begin to try to explain what exactly happened here. But what we see is that 
God is gracious to Moses in the fact that he does not fully reveal himself to Moses. Why? What would happen? He would die, right? If you were to behold the face of God, there would be instant death. There's no way that you could do that in your mortal flesh. It's impossible. And so I just want to point out, I think it's a good truth, that God is gracious to us in the things that he does not reveal to us. It is a great thing that the secret things belong to the Lord. Because, and then, you know, we might, we might say, I don't know if you've ever said this, like, look, when I get to heaven, I got a few things I want to ask God about, right? I got a few things. And maybe you don't say that as like, a, oh, I gotta, I'm going to show him. But really just genuine curiosity. I'm confused and I want to know. But there's a reason you only have what's been revealed in the word of God. There's a reason that we can't get in some amazing trance, whether it's through some weird spiritual thing or, or whatever, that we can see more about God and learn more or add to his word. Because you have what you need and that's enough. Spurgeon was talking about this in one of his sermons. And uh, he said basically something to the effect of if God were to start to re- reveal more about himself to us, that it would burn out our very eyeballs and we couldn't see. I like that analogy a lot because I think it's true. Therefore, God in mercy says, Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand in front of you and I'm going to pass by you. And I'm going to remove my hand and let you see my backside so you can see my goodness. But that's all that he does for him. And even that, you know, we're going to read in a few weeks, Moses' basically face ends up gloriously shining for all of the people. It's so much they say, please cover it up, put a veil over your face. God is very gracious to do that. He's very gracious to do that, you and I. So next time you are pleading with the Lord, God, I don't understand why. I can promise you, it's not that you need to understand why. It's that you need to understand that God is a gracious God. He's a good God. He's a glorious God. That's all you need. I promise that's all you need. And he's given you that for a reason that you might trust him. And that's a good thing. I think sometimes God purposely removes his presence, the felt joyous presence of God. He move, removes that from us that we might learn to trust his name alone. And my God is the covenant keeping God. He's the everlasting, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. That is my Lord. And I will serve him whether I feel it or not. That's a good promise for us, a good thing for us to cling to. And then thirdly, and maybe most obviously, God shows us here that he is a glorious God. He is a glorious God. Let's go through a few things. Um, we just read verse 9 11. I'm not going to read it again. But the first thing I want to mention is that God uh, manifests his presence in the cloud. See, what it means that God is glorious, it means that God has a weight and a substance that is incomprehensible. That's what it means. Okay, if someone has glory, there's a weightiness to them and God has all of that, all of his character, his nature, his uh, everything, right, consumed in his glory. Now, God reveals himself in a cloud. The cloud descends just like on Mount Sinai. It descends upon the tent of meeting as Moses goes in there. And you might think, well, that's kind of weird. Why a cloud? And I don't have some great answer about how glorious clouds are. I just want to mention that God is so altogether different and unseen. Remember, we can't behold his face or we would surely die. That God has to communicate to us in such a way through a physical manifested thing. And he chose to do that by the cloud. Now remember, this cloud was not just a, pre, a, a, you know, a pleasant, fluffy cloud, right? When it comes down on Mount Sinai, the people are so scared, they bury themselves in the sand when they hear the thunderous voice of God and see the cloud. God says, if you approach this cloud, if you're not Moses, you shall surely die. If you even touch the mountain 
or an animal touches the mountain that my glory descends on, you will die. This cloud was a reminder, a physical, visual reminder of the glory of God, the almightiness of God, the, how scary he was. Right? God was showing his glory in the cloud. This is a good thing. And it was a scary thing, and this is the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> Another way God teaches us that he's glorious is um, God teaches us that he is the sovereign God of the universe. Um, this is a famous text, and depending on your background, you might get uncomfortable as you read it, or you might rejoice as we read it. But nonetheless, we should rejoice. It's in the Bible, and God says this. He says um, in verse 19, kind of halfway down, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. What God says, I am God. No one persuades me to do anything else other than my will. I sit in the heavens. I do whatever pleases me. I am God. I will have grace because I decided to have grace and I will have mercy because I decided to have mercy and that's it, right? And if you're a Christian, this is a gracious thing because if it were dependent on, if my grace from the Lord were dependent on me, I would be terrified. I am not worthy of grace. I am not worthy to be loved. I am not worthy of anything. And this is not God being harsh, but this is God showing us I'm in control. Moses, no matter how much you plead, I'm not going to be like, you know what? You really changed my mind there. I feel like I've been enlightened by Moses' wisdom. That's not what God's doing, right? God is all wise. It doesn't mean he doesn't use Moses. But this is important. God is letting Moses know that although he definitely used Moses in his pleading to change the situation, that it was God alone who planned and executed this. It was always God's plan to be gracious to his people. It was always God's plan to be merciful. And I love the fact that God is in control. This should bring us great joy and comfort. God's in control of everything. There's nothing, as Spurgeon said, not even the tiniest dust moat is out of God's control as it flies through the air. It's all under our gracious Lord. God is showing how glorious he is from the foundations of the world to the ends of the age. God is in control. And I love the fact that when God is explaining his glory and shows it to Moses that he says, I am going to reveal all my goodness, right? Because if you have sovereignty without goodness, it's scary for us, right? Our God has both sovereignty and he has goodness. And this is a great combination for us. And so um, I just, I do think we should have great caution. So this is an example. Uh, Last week in chapter 32, it says God repented. Do you think God messed up, right? It's a good question. Did God mess up? It's, oh man, did not mean to do that. My bad. No, that's not what happened. God knew about the calf. He knew about it all. When we interpret those texts, we have to hold some things in tension. Yes, there's, there's mystery. I don't claim to know half of the mystery. One iota of the mystery. God is so mysterious. But we have to hold these things in tension, which is that God uh, can never be persuaded differently than what he already thinks and does and knows, right? We can't affect him in, in this certain way. But we also have to hold the tension that God is trying to communicate his character to us in such a way where our finite peanut brains would understand right I mean we just we have language we have to work with that right and so when we read about God's emotions we read about him changing or or something affecting him like it's a real way for God to explain what's happening it's far more complicated than we make it and so I would say if the sovereignty scares you that our conclusion should be look I don't know a lot of things I know God's called me to act and I know God is in control and that and that he's good that's good enough for me 
That's good enough for me. He's going to have grace. He's going to have mercy. And as we continue throughout the book of Exodus, we're going to see he is abundant in mercy. He has an abundance of steadfast love, of grace and mercy that this sovereign God wants to show to the world. And I rejoice in that. And if we are part of the people of God, we are in that category of he will have grace on us. He will have mercy on us. God is showing I am so big, so glorious. And we should rejoice because this glory is reality. The third thing, and we get this from the backhand that we read there uh, from 19 to 23, is that God allows his glory to be seen. God allows it to be seen. God's not holding back his glory. He's not just saying, look, I'm glorious and you'll never know about it. What happens? Moses asked this, he gives this request in prayer, which uh, most scholars would say there's no way he had any idea what he was asking when he says, God, show me your glory. What a daunting thing to ask for, right? God, show me your glory as if he could take it. That's why God reminds him, look, if I was to show you my glory, you would die, Moses. But nonetheless, God allows himself to be seen. Albeit just the backside, right? He says, look, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to pass through. But he allows Moses to behold the goodness of God, the fullness of God, the glory of God. This is amazing. God shows us in this passage that he is glorious by showing that he reveals that glory to Moses and what is seen. God is good. Um, He says, you will die if you see my face, but I will show you something. And then I just, you know, obviously, I'm sure your brain went there, but I start thinking, Wow, how amazing this as members of the new covenant. Look what 2 Corinthians 4 says. It says, starting in verse 3, And even if our gospel is, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a better word than the word to Moses, right? Now it is still true that if we were to see the glory of God in all its fullness, we would surely die. But we have this unique thing as being on this side of the cross that Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, now God through his son has revealed to us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is amazing. So you and I, In Christ, now we get to behold the glory of God. Where Moses had to be put in the cleft of the rock and covered, we are now put in the cleft of the rock, which is Jesus Christ, and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amazing thing, guys. God is glorious to us, and he reveals that glory. That's how good he is. He's good. He reveals it. The cleft, the rock, Jesus Christ. It's a famous hymn. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That was one of the best songs ever written, I promise you. It's amazing. So we now, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the God-man. What a glorious grace has been given, given to you and I to see the glory of God. And as we read Exodus 33 as believers, we should be rejoicing. Now, I got a few minutes left and I want to take a turn. So we've seen that God, uh, he keeps his covenant, that he is so gracious, and that he is glorious. And so there's a few things I want to, and just kind of in light of this text, that I, I want to bid us to. Um, some of them are practical. One, the first one's kind of a general statement about everything. But um, first thing is that if God 
this covenant-keeping, gracious, and glorious God, if he's not with us, we have nothing. This is Moses' plea. Moses says, look, God, you know, I'm grateful that you, you, you know my name, that you're going to give us the land, but if you don't go with us, if your presence isn't with us, we, we have nothing. He says, look, God, th- this is what makes us a unique people is that you dwell in our midst. If you don't dwell in our midst and it's just a simple angel that goes before us, we have nothing. See, Moses was not content with the mere blessings surrounding the covenant of God. He wanted the substance, all right? He didn't just want the blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. He wanted the substance, which was God being among his people. They would be the people of God. That's why the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land matters because God was the substance. So if we don't have the presence of Christ, we have nothing. I'm gonna remind you of a few things. We have the presence of Christ. If you are in Christ, the Bible says that the promised Holy Spirit, which has sealed you, now dwells in you as the temple of God. If you believe, you have the presence of God. You have it. Now, I want to be careful. Make no mistake, I am not uh, trying to promote extreme pursuits of the manifestations of the presence of God uh, that go down unbiblical trails. I was a part of a church like that. Uh, I grew up in a kind of extreme uh, UPC church and we got down to say the least and as a kid I was like I don't know what is happening <laughs> this is amazing this, I didn't know what this church was about okay it was crazy I could tell you many stories as a like a, a, an eight-year-old prayer partner in a church nonetheless um, I'm not promoting that but I also don't want to be uh, hardened on the other other end, right? As, as John Piper said, I'd rather be a gullible fool than a than a cold, you know. What I can't remember, I can't remember the term, but you know what I mean. And then a cold uh, person stuck in religion. We should pursue the presence of God. Man, I have had times whether it's I'm taking the Lord's Supper and the present Christ is with me, and I feel such assurance that He has saved me and loves me. I remember times in my prayer life that God has showed up in desperate times where I had no faith. And to know the presence of God, the joy of the presence of God with you is yours in Christ Jesus. Like I said, I do think God removes that presence at seasons that we would trust in his name, that we would know no matter what I feel, God is my God. But also he brings that presence in times as we pursue him. He promises when we seek him, we will find him. God is with us. He's in our midst and we should pursue him with all that we have. Which brings me to a practical point, which is get along with God. Don't be a faker. You can't fake it till you make it. It doesn't work that way. Get along with God. God has given us his word and his presence. He's giving us a means of prayer. Look, Moses goes out to the tent of meeting and speaks with God face to face like he's speaking with a friend. And our Lord Jesus Christ, he calls us friends if we do what he says. If we are in him, we are his friend. God treats us as friends now, not enemies, if you are in him. And so get alone with God. Look, I'm not going to put any, um, any parameters on this. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know. I'm not going to give you a certain amount of time you have to get alone with God, a certain thing you have to do when you're alone with God. I just say get alone with him. Pray. Be with God. Be in his midst. Because this is important. That's why God says, look, anyone, anyone who seeks the Lord, come to the tent of meeting. And Jesus says the same thing. Look, he says, when you get alone in your prayer closet, right? Jesus says the same thing. Look, come, come to me, anyone who 
would come. Beloved, do you know that? Do you know that God promises to be with you and give you his presence? Get alone with God. He has given you the means of prayer and his word to know him, which brings me to another point. So not only should we get alone with God, but we should stand on the promises of God with persistent prayer. Standing on the promises. That's an old hymn, very important hymn as well. God, um, you see Moses come and Moses is coming over and over and over again. He comes over and over and over to the tent of meeting and God tells us to pray this way, to stand on the promises. Look, here's a few promises Moses stands on. Look, he says, God, you know my name. It's the first promise. God, you know me, all right? You're with me, you know me. I've seen your glory. You've revealed it on Mount Sinai. You've revealed it in rescuing us from Egypt in the wilderness. He says, God, this people is your nation. God, these are your people. I like it because remember uh, in chapter 32, God basically says, look, Moses, the people you brought out did this. And God says, look, or Moses says, God, these are your people. It's another promise. Moses says, look, you going with us is what you promised. It. That's what keeps us unique is your presence with us. Moses is standing on the promises of God as he's persistently praying and interceding for the people of God. And for us, we need to do the same. We go to the word because in the word we find all of the promises of God that have their yes and amen for us in Jesus Christ, right? And we could say the same thing. God knows our name, right? Our name is graven on his hand as the book of Isaiah says. We know that God is with us and that's what makes us a unique people. We know that God has promised to redeem us and to keep covenant with us and that he will be our God forever and we will be his people forever. And so we stand on the promises of God and we pray persistently over and over and over again in the midst of our sin our sorrow our joy God you said this would be true make it true Lord you said that I'm yours make me yours you said that you give me faith give me faith you said that you will complete the good work that has started in me God complete this work because I am fragile and frail and if it depends on me I have nothing we take those promises into the word and we pray I just love this. This is important, guys. We need to pray consistently. You know, I've had people tell me, listen, I trust God so much. I pray, and I've literally heard this. I pray one time for something, and that's it. I don't mention it again. Why? Because God's got it taken care of. He knows what I need. And I just, I didn't respond in that moment. But what I should have said is, brother, that's not what Jesus teaches us. Right? Yes, God knows what we need before we ask. Yes, God is working for us. But he says, look. If a friend comes in the middle of the night because some travelers come in and it's their friend, their neighbor, they knock on the door and they say, look, please give me some bread. I got some travelers. I got to feed them. I got to be hospitable. And the friend says, go away. I'm sleeping. He says, look, he's not going to give you bread because he's your friend. But if you come and you knock again, you knock again and you knock again, he is eventually going to give you bread because he's tired of you. Right? And Jesus says, in the same way, you should pray. Right? That's what he says. God is delighted. He's not tired of us. That's, that's a good thing. But uh, he delights in us as we knock over and over and over and over and over again. Say, God, give me grace. God, give me grace. God, give me grace. And he delights in doing that. So stand on the promises and bring them to the Lord. Remind him of his goodness, though he needs no reminder. It's more for you. And as a caveat, you know, Moses prays for the people of God. We should pray for the people of God. Is anyone among us sick? We should pray for him. Does anyone need Christ in here? I do. You can pray for me if no one else does, okay? I need him every moment. And then lastly, um, 
we ought to long more and more for the glory of God. Moses says, God, show me your glory. We ought to long more and more for the glory of God. Now, as a caveat here, make no mistake, Moses was most likely asking for the glory of God because not just simply because he wanted to see it, but because he needed assurance, just like God gave him on Mount Sinai, he needed assurance that God was going to be with his people as he promised. So he says, God, show me your glory. Show me a sign. But as we mentioned before, I do not believe Moses was content with the surrounding blessings of the covenant, but he needed the substance of the covenant. And for you and I, I would say, may we long more and more for the substance, for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to be manifested among us. May we long for every breath to be in the glory of God. May we do everything, whether it's we eat or drink, all to his glory. May we long more and more for God to show his glory amongst us, amongst ourselves, amongst our family, amongst the nations. May God be glorious. May he show himself over and over, time and time again. We are not satisfied with our glory. We are satisfied with the glory of God. He's so good. He's so gracious. So may we pray for it. May we see it. May we walk in the shadow of it. May we long for the glory of God. Our God is glorious above all things and he has promised that he will show us his glory. He will reveal it to us and he does. And may we want more and more of it. Now I want to pray for us and I simply, I, I just want to remind us from, from this passage that all of these things, all of these things, the gracious, glorious, awesome, amazing God, he is with you and I. Now that is a much better fight to know him, to love him, than it is to say, well, I just want to be a good person. (laughs) It's a much better fight to say, I don't want the blessings if they don't come with the substance. That's why Moses says, look, God, blot my name out if you're not going to come with us. I I don't want it if you're not there. That is true salvation. That is true Christianity. We're weak as we ever could be. We're sinful as we ever could be, yet we cling to our gracious and glorious God. May we pursue him together with all of our might. That's what the people of God are supposed to do with each other. It's what we're supposed to be. There's no time for gossip amongst the body of believers. There's no time for fighting when we got the glory of God to pursue. And so let's pray for that together as the people of God. God, we thank you so much um, for your love for us. We thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. We thank you that you are always gracious, always mighty, always merciful. And we throw ourselves right now upon your grace, God, and say, Lord, hide us in the cleft of the rock, which is your son, Jesus Christ. Reveal to us your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And may we be changed forever. God, help us to pursue your glory. Help us to pursue your love. Help us to long for that. God, make us a people that don't get distracted by all the woes, all the cares, all the things that so easily entangle us. And God, we are entangled often, we admit. God, forgive us as your people. Show mercy to us as you've done time and time again. Show grace to us as you've done time and time again. Our sovereign and good Lord, we ask, be with us. 
be with us as your people. Make us unique, not because we're awesome, but because you're with us. God, we need your grace, and we ask that you would do it believing you will, because you're good. We stand on the promises as we pray right now. Make us seekers of you. Make us 